For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, uh, please turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at the first two verses together this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There are a number of passages in the book of Romans that are no doubt very familiar to many individuals. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, in Romans 1. Many of you may at some point have learned what was known as the Romans road to salvation. Romans 310, 323, 5, 8, 610, 613, or, or 1013. Sort of these verses that really stand out in our minds and are very familiar. We've memorized them. We know them oftentimes off by heart. Certainly, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 of Romans is another portion similar to that. Very recognizable. We have mem- may have memorized it at some point. May have been very influential uh, in our lives, perhaps. But I do not want this familiarity uh, to cause us to tune out. I think that God has a lot for us from this passage of Scripture. As we know, uh, Paul is sort of turning his, his attention from the truth of the gospel to what that gospel looks like lived out every day in our lives. We mentioned that last time we were together because as we come to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, Paul bursts forth in this doxology, this hymn of praise to God for all the things that he has done and that Paul has reminded us of up to that point. Now from chapter 12 on through the end of the book, chapter 16, but certainly 12 through 15, Paul's going to flesh out for us what does it look like then that we know these truths, how do they impact our lives? And so there are some big questions that we have in life. Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing while I'm here? What happens after all this is over? And we know that the gospel answers all of those questions. We're here because we are created by a thrice holy God, male and female in his image to glorify him. We know then why we're here. We're here to glorify him. We're here to be becoming like him, to to reflect his character in our lives. And we know what's going to happen at the end of this, all of this, is that we're going to be in his presence if we are his children by Christ through the Spirit. And yet probably the number one question that Christians ask is, how do I do this thing called Christianity? So I understand that I'm a sinner and in need of salvation. I understand that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I also understand that when I die, I will be with him in glory, and I look forward to that day. But when I wake up tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, what does it look like to follow Christ? What, what, what does that look like in actuality, in practicality? When Jesus called to some of his disciples, come follow me, that was a very literal thing. They left what they were doing and they followed Jesus. That same call is for us today, but what does it look like is the question. And Paul's going to answer that for us in just these two verses in Romans chapter 12. Now he's going to continue on through chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15 and flesh out more of what this means. But here, very succinctly, he's going to unpack all of this, or I should say pack into these two verses, all of the answers to that question. What does Christianity look like 
Monday through Saturday, Sunday through Saturday, what does it look like lived out in our daily lives? So follow along if you would as I read Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 this morning. Romans 12 starting to read at verse 1. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. The title for this morning then is Commitment. And unfortunately, in our modern iteration of Christianity, we think Christianity means anything but, perhaps, but it certainly means other things other than commitment to Christ. But for Christ, it was very clear, discipleship, following him to be a Christian, a little Christ, a little Jesus, meant that we are to sacrifice ourselves for him so that our lives are totally committed to him as he is and was totally committed to us. He says repeatedly in the Gospels, if you're going to follow me, you need to leave everything of this life and become my disciple. Different people come to him and say, well, I want to be your disciple, but I have this thing to do or I have this to take care of. And Jesus says, leave all of that and come follow me. If you're not willing to die, then if you're not willing to have your love for me, make your love for other people and the things this life look like, hatred, then you cannot be, he says, my disciple. There's a call here to commitment. It's not a call to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, get baptized, give money, and attend church. It's a call to commit oneself fully to Jesus Christ. And so that is what we find in these two verses. But let's walk through that, because that sounds intense. It is. Let Paul explain it to us. First of all, then, in verse 1a, the first part of verse 1, we see the foundation of commitment. Where does commitment like this come from? Where does it originate? Notice he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. As we have said prior, and will reiterate again this morning, The imperatives of Scripture always follow the indicatives of Scripture. In other words, the commands of Scripture are always based on the truths of Scripture. We sometimes, often perhaps, get it wrong when we look at Scripture's commands and believe that it is on us to obey them. We see that Scripture says, do this, don't do that, And we believe that's on us to either do or not do. And it consigns us really to either a life of despair or a life of pride and arrogance. We either believe that we can follow the commands of Scripture apart from the truths of Scripture that undergird those commands, and we know that we can't and we fail time and time again, and so we are despondent, despairing that we'll ever match up or measure up to what Christianity should be, especially all the other people that seem to be doing it way better than we are. Or we also believe that we can do this thing called Christianity on our own, and we believe we are. We're hitting home runs. It's amazing how great a Christian we are. 
And we come across, as did the Pharisees and others, even in Jesus' day, to say, I've got this all under control when we do not. And so again, the commands of Scripture are always based on, founded in the truths of Scripture. Where does commitment of this kind come from? It comes from God, the mercies of God. His commitment to us is what fuels our commitment to him. Paul has spent 11 chapters reminding us of Christ's commitment to us, of his commitment to us. We are sinners, even though many times we believe that we are not. And it does not matter our ethnicity. It does not matter our upbringing, who our parents were, our ancestry, our moral and good behavior. Paul has spent a considerable amount of time in this letter to the Christians at Rome to remind them that regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile, in their minds, moral or otherwise, we are all sinners under the holiness and perfection of God. We know that whole passage in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. So Paul has spent a lot of time reminding us of who we actually are. Although at at times it feels like the longer we travel this road of Christianity, the more we're, we're inclined to forget just how sinful we are. We think, well, I've got it now. I mean, I don't, I don't need that much grace now. I, I've kind of got these things under control. I've been down the road a bit of time. We're good to go now. And Paul wants to continue to remind us, no. He will say in Philippians, he has not arrived. He's pressing on the calling, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He hasn't gotten there yet. And if Paul hasn't, then I haven't and you haven't either. There is work to be done. And so we need the mercies of God. Mercies that Paul then explains to us in greater detail in chapters 4 and 5, and then 6 through 8, the glories of the gospel, and then how that relates to the nation of Israel in chapters 9 through 11. And then he bursts forth in 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. We are wretched sinners loved by a thrice holy God. We should never get over that. That should never become commonplace. That should never induce a yawn. That the God of glory, who is perfect and holy and righteous, has taken all of our sins, past, present, and future, placed them on his own son, and then taken his son's righteousness and applied it to us that we should never move past that. That should always be at the forefront of our thinking. And it is based on those mercies, those overwhelming, amazing mercies of God, that although we are great sinners, there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that although we are sinners, we are also saints. That God, in an undeserved way, an unearned way, shows his mercy and grace to us. That fuels our commitment to him. Otherwise, it's doomed to failure. It is based on him. It is equipped by him. It is empowered by him. It's all because of him. So when Paul says to do these things, and he goes on to say, I do a lot more things, they're all based on what God has done and is doing for us and in us. So don't forget the foundation of our commitment to God. It is his commitment to us, his mercy and grace. 
When is the last time you thanked God for your salvation? When is the last time you took stock of who you are and how messed up you still are, but yet the changes that have come in your life because of the grace of God? And are you thankful to him for those mercies? Where would you be, where would I be without God in our lives? It is that that fuels the rest of what Paul has to say. And he's taken 11 chapters to get us there. So don't miss that, please. So now he moves into then the call to commitment. This is what the commitment is. And the call to commitment is a call to sacrifice. He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul is reminding us that to come to faith in Jesus Christ in a relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit is a call to sacrifice is a call to die. Paul will say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Paul knew that on that day when he was heading to Damascus with letters from the religious authorities to imprison Christians, followers of the way, to perhaps even kill them, Jesus met him, stopped him in his tracks. And from that moment on, Paul was never the same. Paul remembered that day. And so he sacrificed everything. He had the education. He had the ancestry, he had the pedigree, he had the zeal and enthusiasm. Paul was a rising star in Judaism. He could have reached the pinnacle, the top of the religious leadership of that day. And he says he counts all of that garbage for the glories of Jesus Christ. And what did he give up that for? He gave up comfort and finances and power and prestige and fame and fortune. He gave all that up so that he could be shipwrecked, beaten, uh, attempted murder on his life, twice having to escape from people that wanted his life, and one time actually being thrown, having rocks thrown at him until he was left for dead, all of that. And Paul would say, worth every minute of it. So that's the call. The call is to sacrifice, to sacrifice our selfish desires, dreams, goals, purposes, those kinds of things to say, no, God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? We are all in, all or nothing. But notice in the first place, this call to commitment, notice this exhortation is an imperative based on indicatives. Yes, it is a command to sacrifice, but don't look at that command divorced from, separated from the mercies of God. This is not a say, okay, for the sake of my own morality and I want to be a good Christian and a good person, I'm going to sacrifice everything for Jesus. And he's going to look at that and say, wow, what a great person you are. I'm glad I loved you. No, we are wretched, sinners bound for hell And God snatched us from that path and placed us on the path we're currently on, the narrow way of righteousness and glory. And purely out of gratitude for all that he has done for us, we sacrifice for him. Again, what is the call to sacrifice? He says, present your bodies. In other words, the totality of our being. We are not called to sacrifice 10%, 20%, 30%, 60%, 90%. This call is a total call. We don't say to God, thanks for salvation. That was great. I'll give you this much of me and the rest is mine. The call on us is 100%. God gave everything for us. Therefore, we are to give everything for him. 
Paul says, present your bodies, all that you are, as a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice in the third place? A constant, unblemished, pleasing sacrifice. A sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable to God. Living could relate to the new life we have in Christ, but I think what Paul is getting at here is that this is a constant, consistent sacrifice. A daily sacrifice, perhaps. This is not a one-time thing, although sometimes it's been preached and presented that way. I think this is a daily rehearsing of the gospel. As someone has said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. As we wake up tomorrow morning and then Tuesday and Wednesday and every day, we wake up and say, this day is God's, I am God's. God, what do you have me to do today? It is a living sacrifice, a continual sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that is unblemished. Paul says that it is holy. In similar fashion, the sacrifices offered to God under the Old Testament sacrificial system, they were not to offer an animal that was lame or that was blind or had other defects. We don't give God our second or third or fourth best. We give him our best. We give him ourselves, all that we are and all that we have in a holy sacrifice to God, an unblemished sacrifice to God and a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. The incense that would rise from the tabernacle and then the temple. And even as these sacrifices would go up, it says it was pleasing to God's, uh, God's smell, his, his nostrils. Of course, God doesn't have nostrils in a, in a literal way, but it's a pleasing sacrifice. Anyone who evidences God's character in their life, anyone who chooses forgiveness over grudges, who chooses kindness over harshness, who chooses love over hate, who chooses light over darkness, who chooses to be gentle and kind and, and gracious and merciful and compassionate and good over being evil and selfish and self-absorbed and all of these things, these things are pleasing to God as we grow and become more like him and evidence more of who he is in our lives to a world that so desperately needs it. That is a pleasing sacrifice to God, that we're all in for him. We want to show everyone around us who he is, our father. And notice that in the last place, this is reasonable and informed and logical worship. It says in the ESV, which is your spiritual worship. The King James says, which is your reasonable service. It's a difficult word in the Greek to translate, but there's a number of elements there. To say to someone, you need to be all in, seems intense. And it is. But based on how all in God was and is for us, this just makes sense. It, it's reasonable, we would say. It's, it, it, it's not unreasonable for God to ask us to give all of ourselves to him when he gave all of himself to us. God does not ask us to give more than he has already given. God does not hold himself to a lesser standard than he holds us to. He calls us to simply do what has already been done for us by him. And so it's reasonable it, it, it makes sense. But there's an idea in here where it is also a mental thing. It's not just experience or feelings or an adrenaline rush. It's the use of our minds. It's an informed type of worship. It is worship. It is a spiritual worship, as it says in the text. It is based on the awe of who God is and what he's done for us. But it is not flighty. It is not blind faith. It makes sense. It's based on facts. It's what we know. We know what he's done for us because of Jesus Christ. And based on what he has done for us, the only logical thing to do, the reasonable thing to do is for us to give ourselves to him, all of us to him. 
So the foundation for this type of commitment, this all or nothing commitment, is God's all-in commitment to us. And it looks like this. It looks like the totality of our being given in a constant, unblemished, pleasing sacrifice, which is reasonable and informed and logical. What guards then our commitment in verse 2a, the first part of verse 2? How do we protect this commitment to God, to Jesus Christ? He says two things, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are numerous ideologies and ideas that vie for our attention, that try to get us walk this way. This is the right way. This way of thinking is the right way of thinking. This way of doing things will lead to blessing. This way of doing things will lead to utopia. We have competing and contradictory ideas and ideologies that are all the time vying for our attention, vying for our buy-in. You cannot go on social media or any type of media and not have someone, some organization, some group wanting to get you on board. It is becoming increasingly tribal and polarized in our society. And there are all these competing ideas to say, join our group, join our club, go this way. And, and Paul would remind the Christians in Rome who were also faced with lots of ways to go in their culture, ways of thinking and doing, do not be conformed to this world. The way that the world thinks may seem right, but it is not right. It is not a call to worship God and glorify him as almighty, as authoritative and holy. It is not a call truly to selflessness. It is always a call to self-glory. Even the worldly call to sacrifice is ultimately for self-benefit and self-glory. It is not true. We are inundated with fake news. You can't trust any of really the news outlets to be objective, if that's even a thing anymore, journalism. Everyone is biased. We've always known that, but at least in times past, there was at least uh, uh, somewhat of an effort or, or seemingly an effort to just present the facts is no longer the case. There's a narrative to be presented and any facts that go against the narrative, we don't want to hear those on both sides, right and left. And in the midst of this cacophony of competing fake news and, and narratives being written and perspectives being uh, put out there and ideas and ideologies, Paul says to us, reminds those in Rome and therefore us do not be conformed to that way of thinking. Be careful. It's subtle. It sounds good. It sounds right. But don't walk in that way. It's faddish. It, it, it goes wherever the wind blows. Psalm 1 says the wicked are like the chaff. Whichever the way the wind blows, that's where the wicked go. This seems to be the fad. I'll jump on this bandwagon. And then next week it's this. And then the week after that it'll be this. And I'll go whichever way it is. And Paul says don't do that. But the counter to that is to be transformed, he says. You are being transformed by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. But notice it's by the renewal of your mind. This is not primarily an emotional experience. It's not primarily about our feelings or a Holy Spirit adrenaline rush. It's by the renewal of your mind, your thinking. Is your thinking biblical? Is your thinking clear? Is your thinking God-honoring, Christ-like? 
Does your thinking match God's character and the revelation of who he is in his word? It is so important to be in the word of God, both personally and corporately, to know the truths of God's word. We can so easily be swayed by so many things that are out there. And again, if the primary person you're listening to is not the pastor who knows your name, you are on dangerous ground. YouTube cannot shepherd your soul. You need individuals in your life who are leaders over you, Hebrews 13, 17, who know you, who you can talk with and interact with to guide you in truth. It's very easy to be quote unquote shepherd by someone who does not know your name and does not know the real story. We need each other. We need the church because we will be very easily, especially by popular pastors and teachers. Again, they are just people. We put the celebrity status far too often on individuals and it's not about those individuals. It's about the truth. And so Paul says, renew your mind by the word of God. Does it match up with the word of God? There's all kinds of things out there that can get us off, but the call is to commit fully to Jesus Christ, not commit to a ministry, not commit to a person, not commit to even something that might come across as a good cause. The commitment is to Jesus Christ and it's a full commitment to him. So the guardians of this is to not drift because we always drift away from truth to be conformed to the world, to go the way the world is going, but instead to be being transformed by the gospel and the renewal of our mind to check our thinking. So spend some time doing that even this afternoon. What are you doing right now? What are you engaged in? What occupies your time and attention and resources and finances? What are you searching after? What is your goal? Does that line up with giving everything to Jesus Christ? Does that line up with serving him? Does that line up with sacrificing to him? You notice Christ, he could have had fame. I don't know about you, but if a guy showed up on the island that could heal the lame and the blind, if he could raise people back to life from the dead, that'd be a pretty popular guy. What does Jesus do with the miraculous? The full half, first half of his ministry or beyond, he tells people that he's, that he's rescued and saved in a physical way, don't tell anybody. His brothers come to him mockingly in the gospel of John and say, look, you're the Messiah, go down and tell everybody. Go tell everybody that you're the hero, that you're the guy here to save them all. Jesus doesn't do that. He wasn't in it for the fame. He definitely wasn't in it for the fortune. Jesus had no, nothing of this life. He says to some that come and say, I want to be your disciple. And he says, listen, foxes have dens or holes. The birds of the air have nests. The son of man does not even have a place to call home. He has nowhere to even lay his head. Jesus wasn't in it for the fortune. He, he left this world literally with nothing from a financial perspective. Everything he had in life was borrowed. We even sang about the borrowed tomb. He wasn't even buried in his own tomb. Of course, he didn't need it for very long, praise God. But the reality is Jesus wasn't in for the fame. He wasn't in for the fortune. He wasn't in for the power. Jesus could have had all the influence in the world. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but he didn't come like that the first time. What does it say in Philippians chapter two? He came, made himself, humbled himself as a servant. He came as a man, 
but not as the emperor of the world or the master of the universe. He came as a humble servant serving the people. He says to his disciples who come to him and say, can I sit at your right hand and your left? He says, it's not, it shouldn't be about that for you. The Gentiles seek power and authority and positions of prestige. It's not like that with followers of me. What does Jesus do on the night before he's crucified? He gets down on his hands and knees and washes their feet. That's the type of service that we are called to. It's not about the things of this life, even though they may sound good. It's about commitment to him. So do not be conformed to the world's way of thinking, to go after money or to go after power or fame or prestige or relationships or all the things we think are going to bring us lasting comfort and hope and peace and joy and contentment. No, it's only found in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, renew your mind. Remember the truth. You need the truth. So inject that into your life every single day, which leads then to the outcome. We're always concerned about outcomes. Is this worth it? And Paul would say a hundred times over, it is definitely worth it. What does he say? That by testing, you may have three things. You may discern what is the will of God, what is both good, acceptable, and perfect. First, you get discernment. It is so difficult or seems to be so difficult in today's society with all of the messaging that comes at us from so many different ways. What is right and what is wrong? How do I wade through this cacophony of contradictory voices? The word of God following after Jesus, commitment to him. That gives us discernment. Hebrews 4 says that we have our senses exercised to discern what is good and evil. That is wisdom is what we want. And God says, I will give it to you abundantly, James 1. Ask and you will receive. And God is not disappointed when we ask him for wisdom. He knows that we need it. And if we follow after him, if our commitment is to him, we will have it. And we will be able to discern, is that right or is that wrong. We will know that. We will have wisdom, which Solomon says, get that. Get wisdom. That's what you need. And we can have it through Jesus Christ. We can discern then what the will of God is. That gives us both purpose and direction. A different way of asking, how do I do this Christian thing? How do I live as a Christian? Is what is God's will? I've asked that all the time. I was asked that as a youth pastor in my previous ministry. I'm asked that here at Grace. How do I know what God's will is? And usually what people mean by that is, I want to know what I'm supposed to do about this particular decision or circumstance. Did God write a book of Jeff Eastwood, chapter one, verse six, that I can read and, and know what's coming in the future? How do I know what God, that's usually what people mean. The reality is we already know what God's will is. God's will is that in us, he's making us more like Christ. And through us, he's telling other people about Christ. That's God's will. God's will is commitment to him. And as we go, as we, uh, we stick to that, the details in some way, sense will take care of themselves. What is God's will? God's will is to become like him, become more compassionate and kind, more thoughtful and gracious, more merciful and gentle, more good, more self-controlled, more loving, more truthful, more honest. These are the things that God has called us to. And the only way to that is through Jesus Christ. We have that in him. And this then is our highest good in the third place. It is what is good and acceptable and perfect, not based on our judgment or the crowd's judgment, but on based on the judgment of the one who made everything and knows how it's supposed to operate. God's assessment is that when we commit fully to him and begin to start looking like him and reflecting his character, that is our highest good. That is what brings him glory. And so all of this packed into two verses is what Paul is going to now kind of tease out the rest of this letter. 
But here he, he tees it up, so to speak, in these two verses to say to the church at Rome, to the Christians at Rome, this is the call. Not that you can do this on your own. You can't. But he said the foundation of a commitment of this kind is God's commitment to us. Do not attempt to obey the imperatives without reminding yourself constantly and consistently of the indicatives. God has given everything to us and he's given us his Holy Spirit, his word, his church, and so many things to help us on this journey to make this commitment. He has committed to us so that we will commit to him. What does the commitment look like? It looks like a totality of all that we are that is constant, that is unblemished and pleasing to God, which just makes sense. How do we protect that commitment? We protect it by not drifting and going along with what's around us, but constantly being transformed by the word of God and renewing our minds so our thinking is clear and our path is sure. And when we do that, we have discernment, otherwise known as wisdom. We know God's will and it is our highest good and his greatest glory. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you. These verses are simple in the sense that they are easily understood, but they are not easy, which is true of Scripture. And yet, Father, we know that we can obey these things not on our own. We always drift towards evil and towards sin and laziness and selfishness. But we can, by your strength that you provide, glorify you which is our highest good. Father, you do not call us to a 20% commitment to you, to a 50% commitment to you, to a 95% commitment to you. Father, you say to us, come, follow me. And that has become difficult because you have blessed us greatly in our culture. Most of our needs, all I would say, perhaps of our needs are met and many of our wants. There's a great comfort in being a part of this culture at this time in history. And so it is difficult to understand this call of commitment, and it is even more difficult then to answer it. And yet the call is still there. So Father, in our everyday lives, are we asking the question, in what way does this reflect thankfulness and gratitude for what you have done for us? How is this business decision? How is this relationship? How is this circumstance reflecting you, thanking you for all who you are and what you have done? And in what way is this reflecting me and my wants and my dreams and my goals and my wishes? Are we dead to ourselves and alive in you? Well, that's going to look different for different people, and that's okay. But that call to commitment is there for everyone who names the name of Christ. We are called to be all in because you have and are all in for us. And we thank you for that, without which we have no hope. Help us to be on guard, Father, that this commitment does not wane, that it does not relax, but that it is ever present there, that we do not slide into conformity with the world's way of thinking and doing, but we will be continually transformed, that our thinking will be clear and crisp and sharp, that we would know the truth and we'd walk in it. Father, you would give us that discernment, that purpose and direction, which is ultimately our highest good, even in those circumstances where it does not feel that way. Help us as Grace Baptist Church and all those watching online to desire to be all in for you, whatever that might mean, whatever that might look like. Because Father, we need it and our world desperately needs it as well. 
We pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.